I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a few verses in this great chapter together uh, on the theme that Matt's just prayed for, uh, the theme of our witness in the world, what it looks like to be in Christ, joined to Him, saved by Him, called out by Him, taught by Him, but living in a world that, that uh, is... is short of the world that he's promised us, a world that we trust is still coming, a world that we live for and long for. What does it look like to live in Christ in the world? That's the question. What does it look like to engage those who are around us as Christians? One of the many remarkable things about Christianity uh, to me is its adaptability. Uh, Christianity has thrived in cultures all over the world, all throughout history. Cultures that share almost nothing in common. Uh, it's been, it's, it's thrived in different social contexts, different legal contexts from ancient Rome where it first started to, 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 to and, 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 and treated in, in that context as a, a, an illegal religion that was hounded for a long time under, under Roman imperial rule to being part of Rome's imperial rule when Christianity gets established in Rome to, to it, it's thrived in tribal areas uh, in deep remote rural areas uh, in, in, in different countries around the world it's, it's thrived in democratic states and it's thrived in totalitarian states and atheist states like like we've seen in the Soviet Union or, or uh, it's thrived today in, in China, it's thriving in Iran. It's thrived in all sorts of contexts. So one of the interesting questions to me about that is, like, okay, if Christianity can be a, a thriving force in all these different places with different postures towards Christianity, if, in other words, there isn't one particular hospitable environment that we need to look for and work for before Christianity can take root and thrive, is there anything that, 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 that we can learn from the scriptures that applies to how we should relate to the world no matter where we are, no matter what the posture of those around us happens to be? No matter how the government, the powers that be, look at Christianity, what, what are the principles that should affect how we relate to those around us no matter what? Are there principles that always matter? Are there goals that are always out there for us? Guides that hold true everywhere all the time? I think there are. And this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 3, I believe is, is given to us to show us what our target is no matter what. Now this passage, this letter, it belongs to a, a very early phase in Christian history where, where Christians were living in the Roman Empire where they weren't welcome. They weren't actually on the radar of a lot of people in the empire at that point. It was still a small movement, not a lot of people paying attention, but when they did start paying attention, it often wasn't a, 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 a welcome environment. Peter doesn't tell his friends in this letter to expect anything other than that. What he gives them is some guides for how their posture should, should remain fixed no matter what they're getting from people around them. And uh, no matter where you live, no matter how those around you think, feel about your faith, you can learn from Peter this morning, I think, about how to engage friends as a Christian. What I want to do this morning is really just try to pull from a few verses three different commands that Peter gives us that shape our posture as Christians towards uh, those around us. Three instructions for living as Christians in the world. All I want to do is try to make them as clear as possible 
and try to leave you with some helpful questions for evaluating with your, both your own life and your, the lives of your friends how to live faithfully in the time and place God has put you, whatever that means. I want to begin by reading these, uh, these verses, and then I'm going to show you the three commands that we're going to try to unpack together. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. And for, uh, for this morning, I'm going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 3, and then I'm going to read through verse 17. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. You can be seated. I just want to pull from, this, from these few verses, I want to pull three things, three commands that Peter passes on to us, to his friends and, and then across the ages to us that help us understand what our target is as Christians living in Christ in the world. And here's the first command. It comes out in verse 14. The first command built into what Peter says here is, the, is, is this. Simply, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid as you live in the world. It comes out in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, Peter says. That's the first principle. Don't be afraid of people around you who aren't Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, uh, those around you who aren't Christians are not your enemies. Don't see enemies, don't see threats, don't see obstacles you've got to get over or dangers that you've got to hide from. What you should see are people, precious people, made in God's image, targets for God's love and affection and grace in the same way that you are. Unfortunately, fear has often been our posture as Christians towards, towards people who aren't Christian one, one way or another. Sometimes it might come from a good motive, like, like being afraid that you might be influenced by someone's sinful habits or thoughts or ideas. Uh, maybe we want to avoid temptations to sin so we protect ourselves from being around others who don't share our values. We can take that good motive too far and isolate ourselves. Sometimes fear can come from misunderstanding where sin comes from to begin with, as if it's some sort of outside uh, inf- uh, pollutant, if you will, that we, can, that we can hide ourselves from, some sort of infection out there that we, want, we don't want to catch, when, when in reality sin is something that's in us, that we carry around with, uh, with us. So if we hide, if we isolate, we're just isolating ourselves with sin, keeping it in. Sometimes it comes from misunderstanding where sin is and what, how it affects us. Sometimes that fear can come from less pure motives like self-righteousness or just dislike for those who don't get it. Wherever it happens to come from, though, I mean, for, where it comes from doesn't, doesn't necessarily matter. Wherever fear of others comes from as Christians, it's a huge threat because it can lead us to flight or it can lead us to fight. Sometimes it'll make us suspicious of people who aren't like us or don't share our views rather than welcoming in the way that we've been commanded to welcome. Sometimes it can make us isolated rather than evangelistic. Sometimes the, 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 the fear can make us vulnerable to a kind of false savior who promises to protect us, who promises to defend us. 
to, to, to keep us back from what threatens us. Sometimes it can make us want to bow up and fight. A lot of bad comes from fear, but there's, there's one main reason that Peter points us to, that fear should never guide how Christians relate to those around them. The reason Peter points us toward, away from fear in these verses, it comes out really clearly in verses 13 and 14. Before he commands us to have no fear, he tells us, he gives us the reason for that command. The reason that, that fear shouldn't factor into how Christians relate to the world is that Christians should love most what nothing can touch. Like their hearts are set on something that's not vulnerable. Fear comes from the what-ifs, from attachment to something that might be destroyed. But Christians' lives are built around something that's protected for them by God beyond what anything can touch. So look at verse 13. Who is there, he says, to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I think what he's doing here is he's pulling from the, the quote from Psalm 34 that he's, just, uh, that he's just given us in the verses just before. So he's thinking about, he, he's using Psalm 34, which is this reference to a, a good life in God's presence with God's smile on you, having him. He's using it as a, as a kind of catch-all for the, the promises that Christians are looking to, the inheritance that he talks about at the very beginning of his letter. Uh, he's, he's talking to them about a place and a time where they live under God's blessing and, and whether, where, where, where God protects everything that matters to them. He's, he's referring, in other words, to this inheritance that God has promised to everybody who trusts in Jesus. When you, hear, when you read, zealous for what is good, think those who are fixed on that promised inheritance. And he says, who is there to harm you if that's you? Then you get to verse 14 and he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That seems to be kind of a hard turn, doesn't it? Who can harm you? But if you suffer, wait, didn't you just say no one would harm me? And now you're, now you're talking about me suffering? Yeah, I think Peter, Peter makes that, that, that step really easily. Because what he's thinking about in verse 13 is not a good and happy life where everything happens to you in just the way you hoped it would. In that case, the notion of suffering doesn't square up with it. What he's talking about in verse 13 is the fact that nothing can touch what matters most to you, what's coming for you, what what God will give you no matter what. So even if you should suffer here, now, in this life, on the way, what matters most to you can't be affected. In fact, your suffering only brings blessing into your life. Do you see what he says there in verse 14? Even if you suffer on the way to this inheritance God has set aside for you, you'll be blessed. He's almost quoting here from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And Peter would have been there. He would have heard Jesus say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Peter's saying here. Blessed are those who suffer. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They possess a kingdom that's not touchable. So if your heart is set on a kingdom that's not touchable why would you have any fear? See, friends, here's the the thing you need to know. Christianity in the Bible is never presented as a path to easy living. That was never part of the package. Neither was widespread fame or wealth or power or anything like that. The, the, The kingdom of heaven on which Christians have set their focus, it has a different value system. In this kingdom, everything is about God's blessing. 
And that blessing is first and foremost felt and experienced with his presence, not with gifts that he might give you now that time will only take away from you anyway, but with a presence that's yours, that's full of joy and peace and a presence that he's promised will be for you to enjoy forever. It's that presence, that provision, that protection beyond the brokenness of this world, beyond what decay can affect. That's what he's talking about. If the eyes of the Lord are on you, like Psalm 34 says, it's the king, if the kingdom of heaven is yours, if your inheritance is protected there beyond the reach then, uh, of all evil, then, then who can harm you? What can you lose? Sure, you could be hurt in a thousand ways. You could even be killed. Yeah, that would be painful. It was for Jesus too. He didn't enjoy the cross. But he endured it for the joy that was set before him. Knowing what was on the other end, he stepped into it and not away from it. He did that boldly and willingly. And you can too, because even if you suffer, you'll be blessed. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to I ask you a question. Do you have a hope that suffering can't touch? Do you have something like that in your life? If you're, if you're here, chances are you're interested in Christianity. That's why you've come. I, I want to make sure that you can understand where, what Peter, where Peter's coming from here and that you know that, that Christians don't actually believe that, that Christianity is a path to, to away from suffering. It, it's actually more than that. In, in fact, there's a great cost to Christianity. If, if you were to become a Christian, it might mean that you'd have to give up some things that are precious to you right now, some things that you love and, and don't want to do away with. If you become a Christian, it's because, it'll be because you've heard this message, a message that, that, that comes to you as an offer of forgiveness that is full and free. Some hard truth at the beginning, the truth that, that you, like, like every other person who's ever lived, have been sinful. You've disobeyed the God who made you and has given you everything that you have. That that sinful disobedience deserves to be set right that God should set the record straight, but that in Christ, you've been offered forgiveness. Not because you deserve it, not because you say you're sorry and never do anything like that ever again, but because Jesus has done everything perfectly and has died a death that he didn't deserve and has offered to give you his track record. Everything he earned, all the blessing he deserves from God, he offers to give to you. And chief among that blessing is himself. His friendship, his presence in your life, you can have that. And if you have that because you give up on any life that you can establish for yourself, any joy or hope that you can provide to yourself, when you give up on that and you accept what Jesus alone can give you, then what you have is not the promise that you won't suffer, but the promise that you have something suffering can't take away from you. When you have a hope of an inheritance when your eyes are zealous for what is good and you're focused on what's coming on what God has promised well that means that there's no place for fear friends if, if you're a Christian this morning I hope you'll see that these two verses affect how you should think about things that do make you afraid so when you look around you if you look around at the world the time, the place, the circumstances in which God has put you and you're looking around and what you're feeling as you look around is fear of what's out there. Fear of what the future might hold. 
fear of where things are headed, the trends, the trajectories that you read about in the news or, 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 or worry about because you've paid attention to history and it things like, seems like things are falling apart. Or if, if, if God has placed you in a set of relationships with people that feel like hostile threats to you, what it means, friends, if you're experiencing that fear is that your heart may be set on something that's vulnerable. Something that can be harmed. Something that those around you might not give to you that you want from them. Something that those around you might take from you that is precious to you but destroyable by them. Does your posture, here's a question for you. Does your posture towards the world, towards those around you, towards your context where God has placed you, does your posture towards the world reflect a confidence a confidence in and a love for the inheritance that's been set before you, kept in heaven for you, as First Peter 1 says? Or does your posture towards, towards the place that God has put you in, this time, this place, these circumstances, does your posture show a fear that you might lose ground here and now where your love really lies? This is a question that sets us up for the second command that Peter gives us. The second command that Peter gives in these verses for how Christians should relate to the world around them where God has placed them is to honor Christ in your heart. This comes in verse 15. So verse 14, or verse 14 ends with a command, have no fear. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you suffer, you're gonna be blessed because what matters to you is protected for you forever by God in heaven. It's just waiting for the day when it'll be revealed. So have no fear. No one can threaten that. Instead, verse 15, a contrast, instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This, is the, this, this command is like the yin to the have no fear commands yang. It's the, it's the, it's the offsetting, contrasting command. They go together. To, not, to, to, to avoid fear is to honor Christ in your heart. To honor Christ in, heart, in your heart is to avoid fear. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes here explaining why. These two go together really tightly. Explaining what it would mean for you to honor Christ in your heart as holy. To put him on the throne. What, is, what does Peter mean by this? What he means, I think, is getting at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in the world. It's the core of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to honor Christ as your highest value. To honor him as your greatest treasure, as your most trusted wisdom, as your only guide for what is good and your only hope in life and in death. It is, in other words, it's to have Christ at the controls determining how you respond to everything that you face. In the Bible, the heart is the control center, the command center for the person. So don't, when you hear heart, don't think like Valentine's Day heart. Don't think romantic love or even emotion. It's connected to emotion, but it's not reducible to it. The heart is something more fundamental even than that. Think about the heart as kind of the situation room for the person or the, the command center, the controller for your game console. I don't know. Find a metaphor that works for you. But the heart is where the decisions are made. The heart is where uh, is how the person orients himself in the world and relates to it. It's behind the, emo- the heart. And what the heart wants, what the heart desires, is behind the emotions that we feel and the ideas we come to believe or support. It's behind what our minds do, what our intellects do, and what our emotions do. So, so just, to, just to keep fleshing this out, just to give you some examples. 
we don't think in a vacuum, do we? I've, I, there have been certainly seasons in my life where I'd like to think of myself that way. as like mind over matter central, where, where what I think definitely controls my life and everything submits to reason. But that's not true. That's not how the mind works. We filter arguments. We decide what's plausible to us, not just based on the force of the argument or how clear it is or how much evidence supports it, but on how it affects things that are important to us. We decide what to believe based on what we want. That doesn't mean that there's no truth. It means that truth is hard to find sometimes because we, our perceptions of it are affected by our desires. Groupthink is a real thing. We all want to be insiders to some community where we want acceptance and what we think affects our place in community. We all want to justify behaviors that are important to us. So what we think is something our minds are put into service of justifying what we, what we want to do sometimes. I mean, here's just one recent example, just from headlines in, in just the last couple of weeks. I mean, in the midst of this terrible, ugly mess that was the, the confirmation process for, for uh, Justice Kavanaugh, one of the striking details to me was the findings in a major poll about who believed which story. There was a major poll done in the midst of all of it about who was believing which story. And what this poll found was that actually the country was pretty evenly divided. I mean, almost down the middle in terms of just sheer raw numbers about who believed who. Whether a person believed uh, Kavanaugh's story or Professor Ford's story. But you know who wasn't divided in this poll? Democrats weren't divided and Republicans weren't divided. This poll found that 86% of Democrats believed Professor Ford's story and 84% of Republicans believed Justice Kavanaugh's story. And perhaps most striking to me at all was that fewer, in both groups, Democrats and Republicans, fewer than 10% of either group, fewer than 1 in 10, answered that they didn't know. That was one of the options on the poll. I, I don't know what to believe. It's it, it, I, I can't see. I don't know all the details. I don't have all the evidence. I just don't know. It seems like a big mess. That was an option. You could have answered that way. Fewer than one in 10 people chose that answer in these groups. Why is that? Do you think that was about the evidence or the clarity of the arguments on either side or the solidness of their grasp or the facts of the case? That's not what that was about. Reasoning serves what the heart wants. There are always other motives in play. Same thing happens for emotions. It's not, it, it, our, our emotions don't just, we don't feel in a vacuum. Our heart is at the controls. It, what we want affects what we feel. Uh, I had a particularly low moment a few, I guess it was probably three or four weeks ago. I was on an international trip. I had been uh, about 48 hours without sleep because of some of the flights that were involved on this trip. And I still decided to stay up and watch a football game that was more important to me than was rationally plausible for any, you know, 35-year-old adult with a life full of other responsibilities and important priorities. So I'm up at 2.30 a.m. local time, without 48 hours away from my last sleep. And I'm watching, you know, this game go down the tubes. And I'm experiencing emotions like fear at the fact that we were about to lose a lead that we'd held on to for most of the game. Anger at these, this series of terrible pass interference calls that were egregious. Joy 
at the ball that goes uncaught by the opposing receiver on their final drive, followed by outrage that a flag is thrown when clearly nothing had happened that was, uh, to, to affect that path. It was an uncatchable ball, followed by anxiety as they lined up for a final kick, including physical symptoms of it, a heavy belabored breathing, tightness of chest, followed by frustration mixed with sadness, mixed with dumbfoundedness as it goes through and the game is over and we've lost. Followed by a kind of out-of-body experience where I'm just sort of looking at, I'm, I'm sort of, imagine me up at the ceiling looking down at the version of me in the bed watching this, streaming it at 2.30 a.m., thinking, Matt, what are you doing? What has become of your life? You're exhausted. You've got a long day ahead of you tomorrow. These are 18-year-olds running around the grass. Why are you breathing heavily? Why is your chest so tight? Why do you care? Well, my emotions could not be held in check. Like my, what I was feeling throughout this had nothing to do with what my mind was thinking. My emotions aren't, aren't responding to, the, to the, the clear thinking of my mind telling me this is ridiculous. My emotions were being controlled by my heart, which wanted a kind of tribal honor. Right? Like, my place, my people, our reputation, we're on the line in this contest of 18-year-olds running around on the grass. And I want tribal vindication. I want honor. I want respect. I want the envy of the watching world. I want them to all wish they were where we were, where we were from, represented by such stalwart players. And that didn't happen. Right? So my heart's desire for that sort of tribal vindication controls my emotional responses to what's going on in this ridiculous thing that matters to me for some reason. And all of us are like that, friends. Our minds, what our minds think, what they do, our hearts, what we, or our, our emotions, what we feel, all of it is being controlled by what the heart's desire, what the heart wants. So what Peter's saying is that here, pressing the buttons, pulling the levers, at the command center, filtering the content, determining how you interact with the world, determining what you're thinking and what you're feeling, put Christ, put him as Lord, as holy, as different from all other options, other things that might affect how you think or how you feel, other things that might control your life. He should be set apart as holy, better, not comparable to anything else, and he should be there. What would that look like in your situation? Well, I mean, there's, a, there's something you should ask your friends. What would it look like for you to put who Jesus is and what Jesus loves and what Jesus has done for you at the command center in your life for how you relate to the world around you? So remember, that's the context here. He's trying to explain to Christians what it means to be Christian in the world. It certainly won't mean fear of people who aren't like you or don't share your beliefs. It'll mean relating to them through Christ. It'll mean that, that Christ's posture towards those around you will be yours. What would that look like? Well, for, for one thing, it would mean not protecting your turf. It would mean not being easily offended. It would mean that his chief desires are also yours that you'd be wanting to see God's kingdom come, that you desperately want to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
that you'll long to see his name hallowed above all names. Think of the things Jesus prayed for. Those will be your desires if he's at the command center. Ask this of your friends. What would it look like if, if anything other than peace is what you're experiencing when you consider the situation God's put you in and what's around you, so your place in the world, if you're experiencing anything other than peace, that's going to be most of us most of the time, ask of yourself with your friend's help, what's in control right now of my heart? Who's Lord? Ask that when you're offended. Who was Lord over my heart when I took that experience, that interaction, those words in that way? Or when you're afraid or you know, fill in the blank. What are you experiencing? Ask of it. Who's Lord right now? One thing that will definitely be true of us when we establish Christ as Lord of our hearts. This sets us up for the third command. One thing that will definitely be true if Jesus and his desires have shaped our desires is that we're going to look at outsiders and want them to be insiders. We're going to look at those who are around us and think, oh, I want you to have the hope that I have. I don't need my hope to be different from yours so that I feel better about myself. I don't have to be afraid to show you why I think and believe what I think and believe because I want you to share it with me. Think of Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem, longing to gather the people to himself like a mother hen would gather her chicks. That was Jesus' image for himself when he looked on those who didn't believe in him yet. He wanted them to. If if Jesus is at the heart of our, if, if if he's on the throne of our hearts, so to speak, when we look around at those that are around us, that's gonna be our posture. Mother hen wanting to gather chicks. And that's what Peter points us to next in verse 15. So he's given us the command, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Hopefully what that means is a little more clear now. Peter gives us himself, gives us a specific example next. If Christ is being honored in your hearts as holy, then you'll be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and respect. What he's doing here is he's given us a specific example of of Christ being Lord in your heart, how that'll play out. He's modifying that command. The way I want to put it here is that we should all be ready to explain our hope. We should be ready to explain our hope. What I want to do is leave you with, I want to leave you with three really brief observations about what he says here. Three really brief ideas coming from this verse that'll help us see how our readiness to engage the world around us is an expression of Christ being in us and, and, and controlling what we want and how we relate to those who are around us. Here's the first thing I want you to notice about this. This is more of an implication of what he says here. The first thing is that we should have a hope that begs for explanation. We should have a hope that raises questions for people who are watching us. That's built into what he says here, isn't it? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. When people look at us and they see the hope that controls us, they see the decisions we make based on that hope, they see the way it filters down into our lives, they should be like, why would you do that? What makes you so sure that's gonna be a good decision? Why would you respond to those words in that way? 
We should have a hope that we have lives that are engaged enough with the world to be noticed and that the way we're living with Christ on the heart ought to seem inexplicable somehow. Maybe that's the way we respond to conflict. You know, there's, a, there's a normal way to respond to conflict in the world around us. And maybe the way we're responding to it, it just doesn't make sense. It seems mystifying to the people that we live around. Maybe it's the way we talk about neighborhood spats or don't. Maybe it's the way you engage in water cooler gossip at the office or don't. Maybe it's the way you spend your money or the kind of range of relationships that are in your life that don't really make sense to people around you. They don't seem to be getting you anywhere or helping you to accomplish any sort of goal that matters to, to your other friends. I don't, I don't know what it would be, but, but, but Peter assumes that in some way our lives are being shaped by a hope that will, act, will raise questions for people. We're supposed to be in the world enough to be noticed, but with a different grip on the world than than, than we would have if we didn't have the hope of an inheritance. That's the first just basic observation behind this command. We've got to have a hope that raises questions. The second observation, though, gets closer to what Peter actually says, to what his words call for from us. Peter's assuming that, that lifestyle matters a lot. What people see in us should make them wonder where it's coming from. But just in case we were content with lifestyle only, as if the only way we engage the world was to live in a different way that raised questions, Peter makes sure that we know we're on the hook for speaking words that make it clear why we're doing what we're doing. So we ought to answer. So the first observation here is our hope ought to raise questions for people. The second observation is that we've got to be ready to answer those questions and to answer them with gentleness and respect. It matters how we answer those questions. We've got to be ready to give a defense, yes, but there's a, there's a way to misread that line and think of it as more like a call to arms. What Peter's talking about here is not, you've got to be ready to win any argument that comes your way. Like your job is to go be a master apologist that no one can face and, 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 and finish standing up. It's called not, not, not to win every argument. That's not going to be possible for you. You, you can't control how people are going to respond uh, to what you say. And, and none of us is ever going to be intellectually capable of rejecting or, or correcting every argument that ever comes our way. That's just too much to ask. Not what he's asking for. He's not calling us to arms. He's calling us to a readiness to articulate in a clear and in a bold and in a thoughtful way the hope that's in us. Why we're hopeful. These words matter. Peter's focus is on how you speak them. See, if Christ, what I love about his word, his call to us to be gentle and respectful here. What I love about that is that he's showing us that if Christ is at the controls of our heart, then it isn't just the ends that matter, but the means matter too in how we engage other people. This isn't a take no prisoners, win at all costs, battle cry. In fact, the results are going to be up to God. He's going to be the one that will determine whether or not our words have any effect on the people we speak to. What he calls us to is to speak in a way that honors him. Not a weaponized, but an inviting appeal. Not hurling barbs over walls that'll, that'll make us feel safer at enemies that we've never really seen up close, but respectful. I think Prince is telling us here is that we take, 
We take the concerns that people bring, the questions that they have seriously. We want to understand them. Where are they coming from? Why does that make sense to them? And to speak to what they actually think, not to what it's easier for for us to believe that they think. To take people seriously as made in God's image, worthy of our time and our effort, not crazy for thinking the things that they think, but, but, but working to see why they think what they do and to connect Jesus to it. That's what it'll look like, in other words, if we're driven by the same kind of love that Christ showed towards us. We're just going to want to connect their concerns, their questions, their fears to the, to the hope that we have and for them to see why that hope is worth putting their life on. That's the second thing. So our, our life should raise questions. Peter is implying that. But how we answer those questions matters. We're not about winning arguments. We're about representing Jesus well. And this is the third observation. The goal for us in these encounters, when we speak, when we are in the world representing Christ to those around us, our goal is not conquest. It's not overwhelming every argument, leaving nobody standing. It's not protecting ourselves. In fact, it might lead to more suffering. Our goal is to please God. Our ultimate audience is Him. We speak as His ambassadors. And we're accountable to God for the way we speak about him to other people. I think that's what comes through here in verse 16. He's saying, do it. When, it, when, when people ask you why you believe what you believe or why your hope is as secure as it is, you've got to be ready to answer them. But make sure you answer them with gentleness and respect. And then I think in verse 16, he's showing us why that's so important. He says, having a good conscience, that is a clear conscience, knowing that, you've, that in the eyes of the one who made you and gave you that conscience, you have acted in a way that's faithful to him, that represents him well. That, that this appeal to a conscience is also an appeal to God's eyes watching you and keeping you accountable for how you react. So that everyone will love what you say. And think that you are the one who's got it figured out. No, so that when they slander you, he's expecting you'll still be slandered. When they slander you and revile you, it'll be for good behavior. And they'll ultimately be put to shame for it. What he's imagining here is the day of judgment. Until the day of judgment, there will be things believed about you that aren't true. People will blame you for your hope, maybe, or for the fact that you are not participating with the status quo. You may have to live under a bad reputation because of your faithfulness to Jesus until that day. But on that day, when you stand before God with a clean conscience, those who believe these things against you falsely, they'll be put to shame while you will receive the honor that really matters to you. Not their honor. Not their, not their belief that you, that you are uh, among the intellectual elite who's got the world figured out. Not honor from them. In fact, they might think you're foolish but honor from the God who made you and called you to speak for him. What all this means, friends, let me just give you this image, is that we as Christians in the world, the, the best metaphor for us is how, and how we relate to people who are around us is not, not the soldier. I mean, I get that old, that old Christian song, Onward Christian Soldiers. You know, I grew up singing that one. I think there's a little bit of danger in that metaphor. Like, we've not been sent out as crusaders. The means matter not just the ends. We want to see people come to, come to Jesus, but not because we beat them down. Soldier is the wrong metaphor. The metaphor the scriptures give us for our engagement with people who are around us who, who aren't Christian yet is an ambassador. That's 2 Corinthians 5. That's what Paul says. We plead with you as, ambas- as his ambassadors. Be reconciled to God in Christ. What does an ambassador do? 
An ambassador passes on somebody else's message on their behalf, but accountable to the person they speak for. The ambassadors for the United States government do have the right to speak in a, con- in a country that's different from their home country. And they speak on behalf of that government. But they can't just say anything they want to. And ultimately what they do say, they'll be held accountable for back home um, by those who, who really have authority. So as Christians in the world, that's the metaphor for us. When we speak to others, we do it with gentleness and respect because what matters to us is that God will be pleased by what we say, by the way we relate. What we want is to honor him. That means we speak not on our own initiative, but only at his calling. We speak not our own messages, but only the words he's given us to say. And we speak not in the way that seems best or most natural to us, but in the way that our Savior has modeled for us. Our Savior who willingly gave up his own body to the cross and who from the cross looked at those who had hung him there and prayed for them. Father, forgive them. If we represent him, then if he's at the controls of our heart, then this is how we relate to those who are around us. I want to pray that God will help us to be faithful to this model. Father, we do know that you have put us where we are in this time, in this place, around these, the, uh, around the, the neighbors and co-workers and, and, and family members that you've put us because, um, because you know what we need and what they need and it's intentional. Your word makes it super clear that, that, that all uh, the places, uh, uh, the, the times, the circumstances in which you put us are your choice, your design, because you have good purposes that you want to accomplish. And we trust that Peter is helping us to recognize at least one of the purposes you have for us in this time and in this place, that it is to raise questions about our hope and to speak to those questions in a way that's clear and helpful and respectful and loving, just like Jesus was when he came to us. We also know that this calling you've put on our lives as Christians is more than what we'll have the ability to take up on our own. We have failed often enough at this point to know that we will keep on failing if you don't help us. So we ask, Father, that you would help us to be faithful to you, that our church would be a a launching pad for helpful, clarifying conversations with those that you've put uh, put, put in our path and that you would use us as clear witnesses to Jesus who will be compelling, faithful, and bold. We thank you for this opportunity, for this calling, and for the promise of your help. In Jesus' name, amen.